Hello and welcome to this interview as part of our Teaching for Science and the Public Good program. I'm Alison Hornery from the Academy of Science Education team and I'm delighted to be joined today by two teachers to share their experience and insights about how to create and sustain students' curiosity in science and also to help them experience science as an active endeavour. Kimberly Presick Kilbourne is the Deputy Head of Junior School at Newington College in Sydney. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you so much, Alison. And Karen Dang is a primary and STEAM teacher at Tintern Grammar in Melbourne. Hi, Karen. Thanks for joining us. Hello. So happy to be here. So let's kick off by hearing a little bit about your science teaching story. Kimberly, what drew you to the world of science teaching? Um, that's a really great question because actually if you'd asked me at high school whether I would specialise as a primary teacher in science, I probably would have said, no, I think I'll be more in the arts or the humanities. I had a really pivotal experience in my first year of primary teaching where I worked with someone who was doing their PhD at the time, um, Dr. Jeanette Griffin from UTS. And I actually realised that um, I'd done science through high school, but I actually realised how exciting science was to teach to primary students. And I think it really became evident to me that science answers so many questions that children ask. Um, and there are scientific ways of investigating the world that really are uh, exciting for children to be a part of. And so that really got me hooked, I guess, on teaching science and I was really fortunate to then have the opportunity to do my PhD and I looked at at children's interest and how uh, interest in science can be co-created in classrooms amongst students, but also in terms of um, the role that the teacher plays in stimulating interest in science learning as well. And so that sort of took me into academia for a while and I'm really excited now to be back working in a school where we have a really dynamic science program in our primary school and to be working with a specialist STEM teacher in that space. And Karen, what about you? What's your science teaching story? Well, I really enjoyed schooling and I particularly loved science, but I, my, my love really was in PE, but in the, the way like I saw PE through like science. So I went into PE teaching and then my second method was science. But then when I went into the classroom, when I got to teaching, I realized, oh, you know, it was the science teaching that took over in terms of, you know, the passion. And I kind of found where I was meant to be that way. So that's a really great segue to explore this issue of creating and sustaining curiosity for our students. And I'm curious to hear what each of you might have observed from your students, where you see them making meaningful connections to science and what your thoughts are or some of your observations are around what you think helps them make these connections, what helps them make sense of it. Kimberly, what have you observed around this idea of making connections? Whenever I think about this issue, I often think about a student I taught early in my career whose name was Kate. And we were doing a unit on Australian endangered animals and the students were learning about Australian animals. Kate became fascinated by the gastric brooding frog. And I often think about, you know, what was it that actually hooked Kate? And firstly, it was the bizarre. Gastric brooding frogs are amazing because they actually are able to swallow their spawn. And then they turn off the gastric juices in their stomach for the 
tadpoles to be able to grow. And then they regurgitate little froglets. And so Kate found this really amazing. And we were, ended up going to the Australian Museum as part of our unit. And when she got to the museum, actually, even the frog experts at the museum were fascinated by her questions. And <laughs> that was really exciting for her because she saw herself as, as asking the questions that were real questions in the world of science. And that really helped her to create sort of that meaningful connection. The bizarre is one way, but also I think those sort of real world experiences of wonder are really important. And this is one that I think we often think about that real world relevance as well and the relevance in children's own lives in terms of what they're learning in science and how that can relate to the places they live in, the things that they're interested in naturally and the curiosity that they bring. That real world connection, Kimberly, around, you know, Kate's experience of, of talking to the real scientists doing this work, I guess is also a really important part of that connection, right? That immediate feedback loop that people who are doing this as their job or their career find what she's curious about interesting too. Absolutely. And that ripple effect, I think, I mean, that came in amongst the students in the class as well, because we all became really excited by Kate's sense of fascination and wonder. But I think often schools, citizen science projects or school involvement in citizen science projects can really bring that about as well. So some of my students, we've done the spring waterbug survey before with Streamwatch. And again, that sort of collection of data that's contributing to a project that's bigger than the students. But it's located in a local environment and they can see the way that they're actually using processes that real scientists use and that they're contributing to answering questions about water quality and informing a, a bigger project about um, the health of water systems. That, that really helps to create relevance as well. Karen, what have you observed that sort of hooked students into making these connections? Well, actually, it's the most rewarding part when, when students, you know, can make meaningful connections with what they're learning into their everyday lives. And I think it's it's the way the structures in the classroom set up and the way that their students are permitted to, I guess, share their thinking. That's where I see, you know, they can make those thinking that it's in their head. You can see them, you know, ticking away. And then it's a really powerful uh, intrinsic motivator for them. So the sorts of things that, you know, I do in the classroom that, promote this is I use thinking routines where, you know, they do see, think, wonder. And, you know, this invitation to say what they think freely uh, without risk, you know, is a, a great way for them to feel empowered to make these connections throughout the rest of the, the unit. I guess also being very explicit, um, you know, in, in the scientific language that we use helps them share what it is that they're connecting I mean, there's some great examples there about how to make curiosity contagious, I guess, and designing that into the experiences that you're creating. Karen, I'm wondering if you've got some thoughts about what you've observed or experienced that demotivates students from, from feeling like science is for them or something that they could explore or be more interested in. Well, I was thinking about this question and so I, I had in my mind the sorts of things that would motivate them or encourage mm -hmm. students and then when I got to this part I was thinking well it's actually just the opposite <laughs> of everything but I think back to you know my teaching degree and how the focus was on you know setting up I was um, secondary science trained 
even though I've been teaching in the junior school for 20 years. You know, it was the setup and it was making sure the procedures and processes were all there and safety. And so there was all that focus on the classroom structure, but not so much on the culture of the classroom. What's appealed to me so much about the junior school teaching in junior school classes is, you know, the open-ended and the flexibility of connections that we can make with the students. And then we can use that to really switch on their imagination and their sense of play or pretend, you know. So a lot of my units are designed around, you know, how how can we really leverage that and, and make use of their imagination and, you know, so they pretend to be a, an expeditioner or, you know, they have to solve a problem. And, yeah, so that sense of play and wonder and curiosity. So without it, that would be the demotivator if they're just going through the motions, you know, and so they're like, why are we doing this? You know, and and that's where they don't have a lot of agency and they don't have any buy-in and, you know, the unit comes and goes and, you know, it's no wonder they, you know, didn't get a lot of that, a lot out of it. And they think, well, you know, don't really like science. Mm. It's not for me. Mm -hmm. Kimberly, what about you? Have you found some similar disengagement and demotivating, you know, elements that you've either you know, experienced or inadvertently created and, and had yeah. to, you know, overcorrect? Look, that's an interesting question. I think sometimes where students feel like they have a lack of choice. And so sometimes I think, obviously, when we're teaching children how to design their tests, sometimes, you know, it is necessary that we do things that are, that are much more structured by the teacher but then as they become more confident in those sorts of processes, then thinking about how we can have questions and, and guided investigations that enables students to, to have some choice in you know, how, they, how they investigate or the questions that they ask. I just think that can really help to motivate. And I think that lack of choice demotivates as a, as a converse, I guess, in the same way that Karen was talking about, thinking about, you know, well, what the opposite, what does the opposite of, of motivated students look like? I think sometimes if things are too abstract as well, or if we go to the abstract too quickly in the learning process, I think sometimes that also can be demotivating. And I think what's so exciting about science is that there are so many opportunities for investigating. And often that involves sort of hands-on investigations or, or real-world applications. And I think that's what makes science um, really, really exciting. And so when we don't have that as a feature in, in our programs, then I think that can be quite demotivating or discouraging for students. Kimberly, can we just dig into this issue of choice a little more? Because I'm quite intrigued by it. It mm. seems to me that choice is almost an inherently scientific, you know, line of inquiry that you have a series of choices that you make around, you know, whether it's an experiment or whether it's some kind of discovery or whether it's, you know, researching something. Mm. Can you give us a, an example or a couple of examples where you've, you've worked with this idea of giving students choice so that they are motivated, they can see that there are different ways to come at what, what is sometimes seen as this block of almost incomprehensible fact? Absolutely. So one of the one of the units that I've taught has looked at different forms of energy, and we particularly looked at at heat and light and sound energy. And so when when we were looking at at those forms of energy, we actually talked about creating a, a classroom museum with explainer stations. And so the students had to decide which form of energy they'd like to become expert in or specialize in. 
And then they had to set up or d- and design an, an explainer station in the way that you might come across in a museum that then their classmates or visitors from uh, another class could come in and participate in the activities that they designed. And that was hugely motivating for them because they'd been given a choice firstly in which form of energy they wanted to, to focus on, but then they'd also been given the opportunity to do some research and to look at different types of activities, what aspect of the concept of, of heat, light or sound they wanted to focus on in their explainer station. And then they had to think about audience. So it was quite purposeful in terms of they had to think about, well, I'm designing something to teach my classmates or I'm designing something to teach a buddy class that might be coming in to our classroom museum. And so there there was a, a clear sense of audience for what they were doing as well. Karen, I'm interested, just in light of some of the things Kimberly was saying there, to come back to the point that you were making earlier around students having agency in their experience of learning around science, you know, how they can feel, you know, included and empowered in, in that experience. Could you give us uh, some examples of how you are mindful of bringing that agency into some of the things that you do with your students? I guess it's kind of difficult because in the in the junior years, you know, the, the, the sense of agency we need to develop over you know, the multiple years, so you scaffold it so that they can make good choices. So the sorts of things that, you know, I would do with a younger uh, year group would be, you know, invite them, like like POE activities where there's, you know, they're, they're invited to make a prediction and then, you know, make observations and then the explanation comes. And then we do this again at a deeper level where they can base their next predictions on from the previous activity. So little like a strategies like this within the classroom in the science context really gives them that sense of, you know, I can contribute and I can make good choices. So then in the later years, you know, I give students things like choice boards where they're able to demonstrate. So so, you know, the unit would start off with a provocation. For example, you know, like the water cycle, you know, is it possible that this the water in this glass is as old as you know from the dinosaur times and you know we set about trying to find the answer to that and then they're given a choice to demonstrate that in any way that they like or you know what suits them I remember doing this years ago with year six students the the girls really loved to dance and there's all this theater and so one of the choice I put up there was you know to demonstrate it you know in in a dance and part of the choice is you know, whether you work by yourself or with peers. But today, if I were to do this again, I would be throwing in, do a scratch project mm-hmm. or make a stop motion animation because there's so much, so many more tools out there that the students can use now. And then that agency is developed over the years so that they can plan and structure and make it like a, a real task. And they can be working on separate stations in the same session. So when you walk into the classroom, you've got different groups of people doing different things, but all demonstrating their learning from, you know, the content. So this is a perfect kind of introduction to one of my favourite topics, which is questions. And I'm very curious and can't wait to hear some of your favourite questions that students have surprised you with or have perhaps opened up possibilities for them and for, you know, the, their students around them as well by posing it, with this idea of, you know, this curiosity being contagious. Kimberly, what's been some of your favourite questions that you've that you've had to field in in this work? Do you know at the moment I'm finding when I'm on recess duty or lunch duty down in the playground, we have a kitchen garden in our in our playground, 
And at the moment, the citrus trees are covered in stink bug. And it's amazing how many questions that <laughs> have, have been arising around the stink bugs on the, on the citrus trees in terms of, you know, the, the ones like, why are they there? What's their purpose? And, and why are they attracted? For, and then, of course, it leads to, well, how could we get rid of them? And what, you know, what, if they don't serve a purpose for the tree, then, then how do, you know, do we, do we need to get rid of them? If they do, if they do serve a purpose, you know, should we keep them on the tree? So there've been lots of questions about the kitchen garden, including we end up with cockroaches in the, in the mulch and students talking about, well, we don't want the cockroaches there. So how could we get rid of the cockroaches from the, from the compost or the mulch? So I, I've found lots of questions just arising from the playground or from the walk back. We, we go to local sports field for, for sport and just thinking about this children have been picking up the gum leaf trees from the ground and looking at the diversity in terms of of gathering their gum leaves and and you know why are there so many different types of leaves and why have it, has this tree got really big leaves and this one's got little tiny leaves and so so I just think in that 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 every day the serendipitous questions we had a massive hailstorm the other week and that we were over at, at sports training and the children were asking questions about you know what is the difference between hail and snow. And you know, why, why does hail form sometimes in a storm and it doesn't form at other times in a storm? And there were so many questions coming out of their, their sort of everyday experience, which I think are really lovely questions and opportunities. As Karen was talking about before, you know, often we, pro- we, we create provocations for students. And I think how we, you know, that those sort of opportunities in terms of their everyday experience and the wonder and the awe and the curiosity about the world around them, how they they can be really helpful in how we frame a provocation. And that really comes back to your point, doesn't it, around you know, making it less abstract. It's absolutely visceral because mm-hmm. they're, they're in the playground experiencing it or observing it at the time. Absolutely. And it, it also, I guess, you know, often I think about, oh, excursions being really wonderful opportunities to take students into into environments, but actually our playgrounds are great spaces that starting to think about scientific investigations as well. Karen, what have been some of your favourite questions? I cannot come up with like one favourite question, but <laughs> there's been so many over the years and, and it, it feels does feel like, you know, we're bombarded with them and and it's it's a real joy to you know to be presented with it and then you know demonstrating or role modeling it you know explicitly how I would go about finding the answer to it because I often don't know immediately talking about the walking back from you know the playground or the from from the the oval we we have a farm at the school and we often I often go down there with the students and there's all these questions about the sheep and the guinea pigs and the chickens and the eggs and, you know, why is this happening and why, you know. And and so we go through this process of having a discussion, you know, to come to some kind, you know, come to a, you know, like a satisfactory temporary answer until we get back to the classroom. And it's a long walk back to the classroom. So it does give us an opportunity to really, you know, like, really think about it and there's usually a group of us trying to struggle up that hill together huffing and puffing you know (laughs) so one thing that I do like to do with you know to to formalize it is a thinking routine called I used to think but now I know Um, and I try to do this at the end of at least you know every two or three sessions because it really informs and steers the direction Uh, it gives me an idea of you know what what they're thinking or if there's any 
misunderstandings that are happening. And some of the questions on, you know, in that is really informative. I have an example, but it's not a science example. It was when I was teaching year six and we were learning about our federal parliament and one of the students wrote, and this is always stuck in my mind, that I used to think that the Australian parliament was a big, giant crèche. <laughs> and, uh, but now I know that's where laws are made. <laughs> I was like, check, I'm glad I did that. did that one well. But, you know, it does, it did really serve to remind me that, you know, in terms of what we intend to impart and in our lessons, our learning intentions, sometimes students walk away with something that's totally, you know, off track. And it's, it's kind of important for us to be able to check in, you know, to steer them back in the right direction. Mm. So this is a really interesting stepping off point, I guess, for this this issue of how we help students experience science as an active endeavor. And Karen, your your you know technique there of used to think and now I know is a really interesting example, I think, of of how students can start to get their minds around how, you know, science and these these explorations can sometimes be uncertain. That to find answers is a collaborative effort sometimes, that it can be really creative and you ask these, you know, really out there questions, but also that it's non-linear, that you can jump around potentially and, and find your way to an answer from from multiple entry points. What are some of the ways, Karen, that you you help give students the experience of that there isn't a single linear, you know, one direction into an answer or an understanding about something? This is like a, a process, you know, so I think back at, to how busy the classroom is and the amount of time, you know, within the week that we're doing science or we're doing, we're doing a STEAM session now. Mm-hmm. And um, with all those opportunities over the multiple years that they're in the junior school, it needs to be built on just like maths is a spiraling process. So, so are these processes. And one thing that I use is, you know, is the 5E model. And the 5E model, I think that one of the, you know, there's so many good things about it, but one of the best aspects is the the cyclic nature of it and how there's that evaluation process. And that evaluation is so important because it allows the students to connect and tie up their learning. And then we see more questions come out of that. And then that becomes posed, that that is the, the inspiration for the next bit of work that you know you are to do and it goes back to being explicit with what we're doing and how we go about finding answers to things that reflective that evaluation process is really important because it helps inform us of what the next question is and I think you know this is really uh, evident when we in the STEAM center when we design something and that it doesn't work and we use that what didn't work to inform us on how we can shape the next iteration, you know, and, and we show them the the loop, the algorithm that, you know, you go back to the design process, go back to the drawing board and use what you've learned to make your next question or, you know, do your next design. I think being explicit with that, using the language of, you know, try again, try a different way is something that the students can hang off. So it's like a peg, a memory peg for them, you know, so when they're doing science, that that's that is also present, that you use your experiences, you build on it, but that reflective process is really important part. Kimberly, what's been your experience navigating this, the complexity and the uncertainty and the 
you know, the different ways that, that you can come at an exploration and an answer. Look, I have to, I, I really agree with Karen in terms of the 5Es being a useful teaching model for us to use. But, but I, I also have to say, one of the things that, that sort of messiness of science, I think sometimes when we present sort of a fair test to students, it's sort of seen as, as, as a linear process, when in fact, you know, we are going back and we are going forward and, and then we're, we're, we're tweaking something and changing something and, and the question that we ask might even change in that process as well based on what we find. And so I think one of the ways that we've tried to expose students to sort of the, the ways that scientists work is, is by inviting parents and community members as guest speakers into the classroom. And at our school, that particularly happens during Science Week. And so we always hold a STEM festival at that time within our school. And that have, that creates opportunities for parents or community members to come in and to talk about the work that they do. And to me, that really highlights for students some of the realities of, of working as a scientist as well. But, you know, it's not necessarily lab work. It can be field work or it's not necessarily something where you're someone sitting at a computer by themselves, but, but there's constant sort of interaction and collaboration with other people and, and that importance of communicating findings being, being an important part of, of being being part of the scientific community. So that's been something we've done. The other thing that I've been lucky to be part of has been a collaboration with universities and through a project. I was actually working in the university at the time, so I was one of the university partners, but there was a project working with primary schools and secondary schools. The project was called WAFTIS, but it, that was the, an acronym using the initials of the, the different schools that were involved. But we actually had secondary school mentors working with primary school students to design um, a, a process, a scientific process, so that they could engage in fair testing and around a, a question of interest or an issue of interest to them. And then we had university partners working with the, the schools as well. And so it actually was a really nice collaborative partnership that really brought to life. Um, we had we had different guest speakers from the university who were scientists. We had one time a, a researcher who was looking at, at bees and honey in urban environments. And, and that was a really exciting example of, of a scientist who was able to talk with us about you know, the questions that she was asking in her research and the, the, the processes that she was using to talk about her work. So... Karen, can I just come back to you briefly? You mentioned the experience of, of working in the STEAM Centre and, and Tintern has a, a STEAM Centre, which is a very exciting opportunity for, for the students. So as a STEAM teacher, this issue of cross-discipline, uh, you know, interdisciplinary collaboration and so on, and trying to embody that as early as possible. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of the A in the STEAM? We hear a lot about STEM, but STEAM less so. Can you talk a little bit about where the A features in your work and how you, you deliberately or, or otherwise include that in, in how, you, how you work with your students? Yes. Yes. So this STEAM, STEM comes up often and I wasn't part of the process of why it was decided that we would call it a STEAM centre as opposed to STEM and my understanding was that it was that you know in terms of our approach to to teaching and learning why not include it because it's very much part of everything that we do so I don't think that you know we deliberately go out of our way to include the A mm -hmm. in, in STEAM I think it is just a natural part of our teaching process. So 
there's no like, oh, we need to make sure that, you know, we include that aspect in. It is just that we've just, you know, carried on. So um, one example that I can give, I recently, um, uh, the students in years one and two created a stop motion animation after they had learned about ocean life. So I posed the question, what lives deep in the dark depths of the Indian Ocean? Um, we had an opportunity to live stream scientists on the RV Investigator just recently. There was a, um, it's expedition led by a museum, Victoria. Um, the expedition went to part of the Indian Ocean near the Christmas, Christmas Island. Anyway, so I shared screenshots of the creatures that were found in the nets with the classes that appeared on my Twitter feed. And then the magical discovery occurred, you know, through the whole process where students made, I gave them clay and they made creatures based on the images that they saw. And so there was maths, there was biology, there was hands-on creation of the, um, the creatures, the ocean life, the, the creatures that they found. Mm-hmm. Then we, you know, made the titles and the credits. And so it was important for them to be able to apply, you know, the words that they had studied that week mm-hmm. and you know in terms of connecting it all it was really wonderful to see that students had you know were using their list words from the week and they noticed it in the words that we were using you know in their titles in their credits so yeah that's that's so there's the answer to your question is that you know where there's no deliberate action you know to include the A it is just part of how I teach you know how we all teach it's so nice to to almost see that it's it's taken as read. It doesn't need to be articulated. It just is how the world is. And I think that's a, a really encouraging and, and um, affirming, certainly speaking for myself, our way of thinking about it. Um, then, Karen, your points there too around, you know, the connections that students are making back to their lists and so on. Like it comes right back to the, you know, where we started this conversation about how, you know, those connections, those real world connections between what might seem to be slightly disconnected or disparate ideas can be made yeah. can be made real through an experience that allows people to you know discover that yeah so i'm interested yeah. now to to turn to this this question i guess of of you know science as an active human endeavor and this body of work that we're doing is really about taking some of the work that the academy's fellows do and and connecting that to to the worlds of, of teaching and and students in science. And one of the things that you know comes through quite strongly if you view the videos that go along with this program is that there is a, you know, this amazing diversity of experience and expertise and discovery, and that it is an ongoing um, endeavour as opposed to a very you know, fixed body of facts or, or something that you can reach the end of. Kimberly, I was wondering if you would share some of your thoughts or, or observations around this idea of how to encourage and reinforce with students this sense of it being an endeavour, whether or not, you know, a student may think that they want to be or end up being a scientist as it were, but that science itself is something that all humans can endeavour to to understand and, and be more connected with. Mm. How do you reflect on some of those those thoughts and how do you think about that in the context of, of you know, some of your teaching ideas? I think actively engaging students in gathering their own original data is a way that I think it actually can be really helpful in them seeing that, that they can investigate and contribute 
And I think I, I mentioned earlier citizen science projects are certainly being a way of, mm-hmm. of doing that. At the moment, I'm thinking about a co-curricular club, and I'm not sure whether this is going to come up or not for next year, but a co-curricular club that is looking at urban ecology and just starting to think about how we might look at our own we're in a quite an inner city area, so looking at sort of natural spaces within within the inner city. But there's a there's a project that is coming out of the Integrating Ecology Group at Sydney Uni that Professor Dita Hockulay has been been running and leading. But there's a, a book that's just come out, a guide to the creatures in your neighbourhood, and it looks a lot at how. We can look at sort of science journals and keeping a journal of, of observations. And I've been thinking about how that might be something that students who are interested in science, that that might be a way of engaging them in this notion of science as human endeavor and, and an active process in terms of looking at their natural world around them and using that with younger children as as a hook. And there are lots of ideas in that book that I've I've just read it recently and it's really got me thinking about how that might be a stimulus for thinking about a club, an after-school club or a before-school club, lunchtime club that that children might opt into. Because I think also, I really sometimes we have children, you know, who are feeling a little bit isolated in a classroom where you know they might have a particular interest or the other students don't share that in their class, but they can find other students across the school who are interested. So how we can sort of bring like-minded children together so that they can engage collaboratively in in the endeavour of science, I think is something that we can try to create in schools as well. Kimberly, can I ask to sort of elaborate on that a little more? Maybe one of Karen's points earlier on where she was talking about, you know, if, if she had access to the tools that were available now when thinking about a, a, an exercise back in the day, you'd, you'd introduce some of the you know, new technologies or new, you know, new opportunities. I wonder whether you could just reflect briefly on this idea of, of you know, science as a, a, an active human endeavour in the contemporary world, everything that that brings. Hey. Is that something that you think about in in your work and in, in this idea of how to to create the best possible science, you know, scientific citizens as we can? Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I'm, I'm really there. Are, there are a few sort of apps at the moment, and I am really interested in citizen science. So there are there are a few apps. I mean, Frog ID is one of them, but there are different ways that we can record sound, for example. Now that and upload those sound bites so that we're able to contribute to projects. And certainly there are lots of different ways, I think, that that we can use technology. One of the things that we've been doing too is just doing a lot of block coding with the boys and they really enjoy that. So sometimes we'll give them a, a design task. We're using a lot of Lego Spike at the moment with students for them to come up with with solutions to, to design problems. So I like I definitely do see technology as playing a part, but but I also do think that there are there are opportunities for us to to take it more slowly and to to slow things down um, and to really take time to notice and observe and wonder about things. And I think sometimes the pace of our world, our boys are always on devices, and I think I'm I'm really thinking about how I can create something that takes us off devices and really helps us to immerse ourselves in the natural world as well. Karen, what's some of your reflections around this issue of, you know, scientists as, as an active human endeavour, particularly at this primary level where it's it's creating those foundations and that grounding in this mindset, isn't it? 
What are some of your thoughts on this on this theme and, and how you apply those in, in your classroom? So what comes to mind immediately, especially with the preps and the use one to girls and boys, that concept of imagination and play, because that's how they make sense of the world around them. And so in designing the units of work or, you know, projects, um, I always try to use, uh, you know, like switch on that imagination and pretending, you know, what would it be like for you, you know, use your imagination, pretend to be or to do or to solve a problem because, you know, you are the investigator or you are the scientist. And and that, that works really well to really engage them in a way that's meaningful and purposeful, particularly with the, in the, the recent project that I did with the students where they made models of the deep sea creatures, you know, it was, you know, what would it be like for you to, you know, uh, if you were the person who, you know, pulled up the the nets and, you know, you came across viper fish, you know, how, what, you know, how would you need to be, be you know, careful of the, the teeth and the tripod fish with the spikes, you know, with the, the stilts, you know, what would that be like? And, and that really gave them a chance to communicate, you know, and use their imagination. And then there was discussion about, what would it be like to be on that boat? And then so we started to look at the, the investigator and, you know, they wanted to know what the cabins looked like and where did they eat. And so that opened up a whole new area. And then they started to, I guess, imagine themselves doing that. And I, I remember thinking, wow, that that is amazing, you know, for, for students at that age to be able to, I guess, see themselves as scientists, wonder what it'd be like on, you know, on that boat. And then we had all sorts of questions, which, you know, we, we pose the uh, scientists um, so that they can get some real data about, you know, what that would be like. So switching on the imagination and sense of play, you know, what would it be like for them, allowing them to put themselves in those shoes. I think that's a really powerful way to approach it, especially for the junior years. To close, I'd like to um, just chat briefly. We've been talking quite a bit in our conversation today about science as an active endeavour, but I'd like to close by talking about teaching as an active endeavour because that has come through so strongly in our conversation today that it is an active endeavour in its own right. Kimberly, I know that you're also an active mentor to other teachers and I was wondering whether you could talk about the role of supportive people in your career, particularly early on, and how this continues to change for you as you enact uh, teaching as an active endeavour. I think having supportive people around you is so important, Alice. And I, I think if, if you can't find those people in your own school environment, then professional networks like science teachers associations or you know, being able to go to, to a conference or that, that that can really help to give you some mentors outside of your own school setting and and collaborators, I guess, because I I do think it's really important that we share ideas and that we openly share resources. And I think that's really critical. It's one of the really exciting creative things about being a teacher is is being able to share ideas with others. I I think early in my career it was really important to be able to work with people who were more knowledgeable than me because that was how I learned and and I, I I know that I was fortunate to have people in my own school but I was also fortunate to be able to engage in professional learning with academics at universities who gave me opportunities to to be able to develop myself as a as a teacher always with that real 
passion for enhancing student learning and and I think that's been really vital. Now now I I guess that I'm a little more advanced in my career as well. Um, I love having those opportunities to have exciting conversations around pedagogy and around possibilities. And I love being able to network people in terms of connecting educators who are excited and passionate about teaching primary science in particular, but but I mean, who are excited about teaching um, children. And so I think that's been something that's critical. I think there are lots of different ways that we can we can connect and technology helps that to happen as well in terms of, you know, we don't have to be located in the same city or the same state or the same region anymore, even the same country. We, we you know, we can network with people around the world. So finding primary STEM chat or, or different different ways of being able to connect with people around issues that, that you're really interested in, I think is really invigorating in our teaching. So, Karen, we started out our conversation today talking about how we, you know, help create and sustain curiosity in our students for science. What sustains your curiosity in science teaching? Oh, I think definitely, you know, in terms of creating a network, being on Twitter and being enthused and motivated by seeing the learning that's taking that's taking place elsewhere around the world and, you know, nearby, particularly in girls' education. Pre-COVID, I went to a PD and met lots of other teachers who uh, were at girls' schools and had, you know, similar goals. And that was a fabulous experience because I was able to, you know, meet other people whose lives were very similar, you know, to mine and we had very similar goals and challenges. Um I've been really fortunate in like the school that I'm at. I've been there for over 20 years and it's a very collegiate, wonderful, supportive environment. But having met other science teachers or teachers who teach girls, that was a really good way to connect and, you know, share resources. And then also meeting the the presenters and then, you know, getting advice. And I think recently I... I had a bit of, before I changed and moved into the STEAM, out of the classroom and into the STEAM centre, my role has changed completely. And before I made that change, you know, I had, I knew I had someone I could ring and talk to, you know, who I was able to use as a sounding board and, you know, was able to confidently make that step to move across. So support, it's something that, you know, we have to actively create and maintain. You know, and just as I receive it, like, you know, I hope that I can give that back to other, you know, my colleagues who are looking for evolution in their in their teaching roles. Well, that's the perfect close, I think, to our, our very wide ranging conversation today. Thank you both so much for, for chatting with us. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Alison. Thanks, Alison. Thanks, Alison.